I saw a bumper sticker recently, and I wish you could have seen the agent ticket that was on. It said, women want me, fish fear me. Might be a little delusional, but it was an interesting sentiment. For my brother's 50th birthday a few years ago, I, I made him a t-shirt, present, gave it to him on his birthday. It says, fish tremble at the sound of my name. It reminds us of the old joke of the man, the single man who took out a wand head of the personals, wanted Woman of marriageable age, looks not important, must be hard working, have own fishing boat. Please send picture of boat. <laughs> These are all examples of uh, the thoughts of people that I call fishing fools. My brother's a fishing fool. He works so he can support his fishing habit. And maybe there's somebody here among you that shares that uh, kind of uh, outlook on fishing. But for some people, fishing really is serious business. There are people who make their livings on the waters, and it is their calling. This would be uh, simple enough to understand if we were going to just look at our story in isolated, uh, in isolation. But in the context of John's Gospel, fishing is not always about fishing. And so I'd like us to look at this story this morning and really see that this is a story about the glory of God that has been made manifest in Jesus Christ and how that manifestation of the glory of God is a mission to God's people. The resurrected Christ has entrusted his mission to his followers. And this story will teach us that we must devote ourselves to his mission that he has given us. Simply put, this story will teach us that Jesus' disciples are to continue his mission. We can begin by noticing the mundane of this story. The mundane is what I call the hopelessness and haplessness of normalcy. The hopelessness and haplessness of normalcy. In verse 3, Peter says, I'm going fishing. Previous to that, he has witnessed the resurrected Christ. Uh, previous to that, Jesus had appeared for the second time to his disciples in chapter 20, verses 19 through uh, 23. He appeared to them and said, peace be with you. He showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you again. And he said, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And we're told when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. All that happened prior to this passage we read this morning. But time has passed. We're not told precisely how much time. Not much time. Jesus is now absent from the disciples. And Jesus said, 
I'm sorry, Peter said to his colleagues, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. You have, in effect, Peter turning or attempting to return to normalcy. Returning to a normal life, a good life, a quiet life, the life which he lived before Jesus said, follow me. Because after all the adventure, perhaps even in his own heart, he wished for a normal life. Perhaps because of the absence of Jesus, he just didn't know what was next, and he went back to what he knew best. And this is not unusual when people return home from long time away. My father went off, <clears throat> helped in World War II, and when he came back, he took the same job he had before, and he settled back into the same life he had. He didn't want to keep living what he had been living during the time he was in World War II in Europe. When somebody comes home from the hospital, they want things to get back to normal as quickly as they can. When you come back from a long trip, I remember when my daughter was little, she would go into her bedroom and stack all of her stuffed animals on her bed and count them. It was her way of returning to normalcy. But you know, there are some experiences where normalcy is just not an option. When you go to the hospital and have a baby, there's never going to be normal again in a lot of different ways. When you have met the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ and have been given the gift of the Spirit and been entrusted with the mission of Jesus, nothing will ever be the same. And what I've just described is the experience of everyone who professes Jesus Christ. It's not the experience of professionals. That's not the experience of simply those who go to cross-cultural missions. Everyone who professes the name of Jesus Christ professes that they have met the glory of God in the person of Jesus, that intensely interpersonal encounter which we described right now. There's no normal. Or at least we should say the new normal is super normal. It is to live the life of the disciple of Jesus. To have your shame removed like the Samaritan woman. To have a legacy by bringing your family and your friends to meet Jesus as well. To be recorded for eternity as the first missionary in John's Gospel. Her life was never normal again. We don't know what happened to her. But we know from her initial responses that the new normal was supernormal. If Jesus was crucified and if he is risen from the dead, then there is no normal. But in the absence of the presence of Jesus, Peter and the disciples don't know what else to do. But what they have not recalled or not yet fully realized is that the light of the world has triumphed over the darkness. This scene by the Sea of Galilee is really the first time in John's Gospel that light is mentioned since the betrayal of Jesus. Now certainly days have passed and the sun has risen and gone down, but John doesn't mention that. 
When Judas went out to betray Jesus, John wrote, and it was dark. And from a literary point of view, the whole rest of the Gospel of John takes place in the darkness. Jesus does not appear again in the daylight until the morning of this fishing expedition. He's kneeling on the shore. He has prepared a meal. And when Peter splashes through the water, finds himself in the presence of Jesus, he sees there's a charcoal fire that Jesus has built. As the day is breaking, as the sun is rising, Jesus is standing or kneeling, as it were, by a charcoal fire with fish and bread. The last time we saw a charcoal fire in John's Gospel, it was Peter who was hovering by it on the night he would betray Jesus. This episode is a reminder to Peter that he had once betrayed the Lord by denying him three times. In fact, we didn't read the part that goes on from here, but three times Jesus said to Peter, Be my sheep. Peter's whole denier, denial was washed away in the threefold commissioning of Jesus to be the lead apostle in taking the mission of Jesus into the world. But it's more than just Jesus appearing in the daylight for the first time since the betrayal. The opening chapter of John's Gospel tells us that the true light which gives light everyone was coming into the world in Jesus. And in John 1, verse 5, we are told the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, some of your translations will say the darkness has not comprehended it. Uh, and the Greek word there can be, can be either one, depending on the context. But this word is used through it, uh, in other places in John's Gospel to talk about the struggle between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. The problem of the world is not simply an information problem. The problem with the darkness is not, is not that it just doesn't understand. The problem with the darkness is that it fights against the light. And John's Gospel begins by telling us that the light of the world came into the world and the darkness did not win. And when Jesus stands on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias on the morning of this fishing expedition, he is confirming once again to the disciples that the, the light has won, that darkness has been conquered, and that the mission that Jesus gives them is to spread the news of a victory. For us, this means there is no more mundane. There's no normal when you set out to follow Jesus. We gain lives of undescribable significance, inestimable worth. We also gain lives of challenge and suffering and deprivation because Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. But we have a mission of victory. That's what the next thing is I'd like us to see. There is the mundane in which we're tempted to return 
But then there's the mission of the great harvest that has begun in Jesus. And that great harvest continues now with his church. The mission is the great harvest begun by Jesus, which he now continues through his church. Now you know that in some of the Gospels, Jesus said to some of his disciples, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Those words aren't recorded in John's Gospel. That's interesting and uh, very exciting in a lot of ways how the four Gospels give us different perspectives and they tell us of different events and even the same events from different perspectives in the life of Jesus. But John doesn't mention the, the, the call to be fishers of men in the calling of the first disciples. But, as I said last night, we should assume there's nothing new in John's Gospel except Jesus. John is so full of the Old Testament that those who would join in the final decisive stage of God's kingdom would be expected to see a fish harvest. And we heard from Ezekiel 47 that, uh, that the prophet was shown the, the new temple that God would build, the temple we talked about last night, and this new temple would have a flowed water that would come off this eastern threshold, the water we talked about Friday night, and this water would well up and never run dry, and it would make the, the dead places live, and it would be lined with trees that never dropped their leaves, and there would be a great end-time fish harvest. As elsewhere in Ezekiel 34, God said he would gather all of his lost sheep from the mountains and the places all around, so also Ezekiel's prophecies anticipate a great fish harvest in the last days. The other prophets also anticipated this. The prophet Amos said, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. There he's describing the captivity and the Chaldeans, the Babylon, I'm sorry, the Assyrians were known to hook their captives by leather thongs in their noses. It puts piercing on a whole different plane. And tie them together and lead them off into captivity. You go to the British Museum to see a depiction of this, of the Assyrian emperor that took the northern kingdoms into exile. They would be taken away from the land of promise like, like being led away with fish hooks. But, Jeremiah said that after that time, he said, I am sending for many fishers, declared the Lord, and they shall catch them. And as we know, Ezekiel 47 says that in the last days, God will harvest a great fish harvest from the stream of living water that flows from his throne. Now, John's fishing story is a little bit different than the other fishing story. There's another fishing story. It's in Luke chapter 5, and it comes early in the ministry of Jesus. We don't need to look there. It's familiar enough. If you remember the story, they fished all night. They didn't catch anything. They left their nets down on the other side of the boat, and as they pulled in their nets, there's a difference between that story and this story. In Luke's Gospel, we're told the net was so full that as they pulled in their nets, the net began to break. 
And the point of that story is the harvest was so abundant that it was beyond human beings. Well, this story is different. We're told that when the disciples began to pull the nets in, it was so heavy they couldn't get the nets into the boat, so they had to drag them ashore, but the nets did not break. We're told that specifically in verse 11. And there's another difference. In John's story, we're told exactly how many fish there were. 153 fish. Now, why is this detail uh, included, 153 fish? It could be what I call agricultural estimation. That my father-in-law is a farmer, and I don't know if you grew up or have backgrounds in farming any of you. But you can say to a farmer, how many bales of hay do you think is in that stack? And he might say, well, I figure about 97. No round numbers in farming. So what's your bushel, uh, what's your yield on your corn this year? Oh, we're probably doing about uh, 87 and a half. So is that what's going on? Is this, is this an agricultural precision? Uh, is that why John is telling us exactly how many Jesus taught? Well, uh, I think there's more than that. John's gospel, of any of the gospels, is full of symbols. Uh, John goes on to write the book of Revelation, as you remember. And there is a thing in the, in the Old Testament, and John's very Old Testament-y. Uh, there's a thing in the Old Testament, uh, uh, the technical word is gematria. Uh, but it's the how numbers are often very symbolic. And you're probably familiar with this. You know, the seven is the number of perfection. Ten is also a number of perfection. Six is a number of incompleteness. And, and now, people have gone crazy with this, and, and they, they really know nothing of the rabbis and the, the scribes, and their, their fairly disciplined use of these symbolic numbers. So you have crazy books like the one that was out about 15 or 20 years ago that are completely worthless. But there is some degree in which numbers are used symbolically, and what would, uh, and John of all people is uh, probably the most likely in the New Testament to do that. So what would be the symbolic value of 183, 153? Um, and this is not just me. I smarter people than me have also suggested it. Well, uh, is, there a, is there a math teacher in the house? Uh, if, you, if, you, um, if you take 5 times 4 times 3 times 2 times 1, you call that the, that the factorial of 5, is that right? Well, if you add those, I think that's called the summation. 5 plus 4 plus 3 plus 2 plus 1. Well, the summation of the number 17 is 153. Oh, it's, do I need to say more? Okay, it's not obvious yet. <laughs> well, in Hebrew, letters of the alphabet have numerical values. And uh, we heard a reading from Ezekiel 47, and there we read that there were going to be fishermen from Engedi to Eniglion. And the numerical value of Engedi is 17. And it is in the northern part of Judah. 
and in a Goliath, the numerical value is 153, which is in the southern part of Judah. And so what Ezekiel is saying there is that the fish are going to be caught from A to Z, from top to bottom. And John, through the work of Jesus here, understands what is going on with the 153 fish catch. And it's confirmed by the detail that the net was not broken. The net was not torn. The point is, how many fish are going to be caught in this great fish harvest that he's entrusting to his disciples? All of them. That's the point. In the great fish harvest, that is the symbol of the end time in gathering of all those for whom Christ has died. How many will be gathered up? All of them. How many sheep were gathered by the good shepherd? All of them. Even the one that was lost sought and brought back. The point of this is is that even as Jesus entrusted his mission to his disciples, he said, your mission will succeed. By the spirit which I trust, by which I'm empowering you and by sending you in the way the Father has sent me, you will succeed. In the face of all opposition, he tells Peter here momentarily, uh, you have girded yourself and gone the way you want to go, but a time is coming when someone else will need you. And he said this to foresignify signify the kind of death that Peter would die. The disciples, all except for John, who wrote this, met with martyrdom. But in spite of all that, See, and John is writing this at the end of the first century. All the other apostles have given their lives for the sake of the gospel. But John, remembering the words of Jesus, the great fish harvest, the great end-time gathering of God's people will be completed. Now, what is it like, then, to imagine going on a mission in which you cannot fail? You see, and that's the message for us. When we think about mission, we are sent on a mission in which we cannot fail. And the only form of failure we can commit is our unwillingness to participate because we go back to normalcy. We don't accept the mission. Instead, we accept the mundane. And Jesus had said, back in Chapter 20, verse 21. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And that brings us to the focus of the question, which is, I call the mandate. So we have the mundane, and then we have the mission. But now here's the mandate. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Let me ask you a question. How sent was the second person of the Godhead? Jesus talks about this in his prayer to the 
to the Father in John chapter 17. Uh, Glorify me with the glory I had to do in the beginning before the world was made. John chapter 1 tells us that the glory of God has become flesh. John chapter 3 tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. How sent was Jesus? Philippians 2 tells us that though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but instead he emptied himself and took upon the form of a servant, even to the point of death and death on the cross. How sent was the Son to go from the throne of heaven to the depths of the grave, passing through the shame of the cross? How sent was the Son? Really, really sent. And then Jesus says to us as church, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And he breathed on them. He gave them the Spirit of God. The living water that will never cease to flow out of us because of the gift of salvation. The Spirit and the gifts are ours. Luther wrote in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress. And therefore, nothing can prevail against the Word of God. This scene takes place by the Sea of Tiberias. One other time, Jesus handled fish and bread at the Sea of Tiberias, and he fed 6,000. And there were 12 baskets left over. Now, as he broke and gave that bread to his disciples by that same sea, he's doing so to entrust them with his mission. The mission of Jesus is continuing in his church. In fact, as one has so biblically and well spoken, a church without a mission is as much an aberration as a mission without a church. Some years ago, I was speaking at a church in Ottawa, Illinois, on the beautiful Illinois River, the twin cities of Ottawa and LaSalle, Peru. Nobody been there? In central Illinois. And uh, there was a men's luncheon one day at that event where I was to speak. And as I was riding to the luncheon with my host, I said, uh, so where is the luncheon being held? And he said, well, it's being held at the Ottawa Got Club, Ottawa, Illinois. And so I was curious. I said, oh, how many yachts are at the Ottawa Yacht Club? He said, oh, there are no yachts. No yachts at the Ottawa Yacht Club? And he said, well, there used to be years ago. You know, people would have their boats there, and they had a nice uh, dining facility built and a clubhouse and all that. But yeah, the Illinois River's dirty. Nobody goes on that river anymore, let alone ski or fish. So we just go down to the Yacht Club. I said, well, what do you do at the Yacht Club? Well, we eat together. What else do you do? Well, we have bylaws, and we elect. Uh, officers and uh, and uh, keep minutes and uh, what else you do? Well, sometimes people rent it out for weddings and other kind of special family events. 
I said, but no yachts. That's right, no yachts. And I got there, and it was a beautifully nautical, theme decorated uh, club. Had brass fittings and nets and corks and all kinds of nautical things. But guess what? No yachts. And so I had to think to myself, as I ate my chicken cordon bleu, what is a yacht club without yachts? But you know, since then I thought, you know, that's probably a pretty fair picture of the church. We get together, we elect officers, we keep minutes, um, we eat a lot. Sometimes people rent out our buildings for weddings, other special occasions. But do we have a mission? And even if we believe in missions, as I said last night, sometimes we want that to be somewhere else rather than here. Jesus has entrusted to us an inevitable victory. And our choice is not whether that mission will succeed, but whether we will participate in it. And if we have met the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, we know that the light has won, the darkness has lost. And this is the day between B day and B day, where there is no doubt of the outcome. It's just a matter of faithful mission. May God make us able and willing to carry on with the commission of Jesus here as well as abroad. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for not standing far off, but instead becoming like us in the flesh to save sinners. And we ask you to give us confidence that we cannot fail because you cannot fail. Help us to speak a word to the weary, to strengthen them in their weakness. Help us to speak words of life to those who are dying and even those who are considering putting others to death so that they might live. Help us to speak words of boldness to those who are hungry and commit deeds of love and mercy so that the world will know that we are your disciples and that they will be drawn to the city which you have made us, the city set on a hill, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. For your glory we pray. Amen.